This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Waiting Upon the Lord's Timing. In the first half, Dallin H. Oaks shares his address, Timing. Then in the second half, Lynn Clark Callister speaks on They That Wait Upon the Lord, Metaphor and Meaning. I begin with a story I heard many years ago at the inauguration of a university president. It illustrates the importance of timing in university administration. One university president had come to the end of his period of service, and another was just beginning. As a gesture of goodwill, the wise, outgoing president handed his young successor three sealed envelopes. Hold these until you have the first crisis in your administration, he explained. Then open the first one and you will find some valuable advice. It was a year before the new president had a crisis. When he opened the first envelope, he found a single sheet of paper on which were written the words, Blame the prior administration. (laughs) He followed that advice and survived the crisis. Two years later, he faced another serious challenge to his leadership. He opened the second envelope and read, Reorganize your administration. He did so, and the reorganization disarmed his critics and gave new impetus to his leadership. Much later, the now-seasoned president encountered his third major crisis. Eagerly, he opened the last envelope, anticipating the advice that would provide the solution for his troubles. Again, he found a single sheet of paper, but this time it read, Prepare Three Envelopes. (laughs) It was time for new leadership. The familiar observation that timing is everything surely overstates the point. But timing is vital. We read in Ecclesiastes, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. In all the important decisions in our lives, what is most important is to do the right thing. Second, and only slightly behind the first, is to do the right thing at the right time. People who do the right thing at the wrong time can be frustrated and ineffective. They can even be confused about whether they made the right choice when what was wrong was not their choice but their timing. My first point on the subject of timing is that the Lord has his own timetable. My words are sure and shall not fail, the Lord taught the early elders of this dispensation. But, he continued, all things must come to pass in their time. The first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith means trust, trust in God's will trust in his way of doing things, and trust in his timetable. We should not try to impose our timetable on his. 
As Elder Neal A. Maxwell has said, the issue for us is trusting God enough to trust also His timing. If we can truly believe He has our welfare at heart, may we not let His plans unfold as He thinks best? The same is true with the Second Coming and with all those matters wherein our faith needs to include faith in the Lord's timing for us personally, not just in His overall plans and purposes. End of quote. More recently, last April conference, Elder Maxwell said, Since faith in the timing of the Lord may be tried, let us learn to say not only thy will be done, but patiently also thy timing be done. End of quote. Indeed, we cannot have true faith in the Lord without also having complete trust in the Lord's will and in the Lord's timing. Among the persons who violate this principle are those who advocate euthanasia. They are trying to take an essential matter that we understand to be determined only by God and accelerate its occurrence according to their own will or preference. In our service in the Lord's Church, we should remember that when is just as important as who, what, where, and how. For a vivid illustration of the importance of timing, we can look to the earthly ministry of the Lord and His succeeding instructions to His apostles. During His lifetime, the Lord instructed the twelve apostles not to preach to the Gentiles, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then, at the appropriate time, this instruction was reversed in a great revelation to the Apostle Peter. Only then, at the precise time dictated by the Lord, was the gospel taken to the Gentiles. As this example shows, continuing revelation is the means by which the Lord administers His timing. We need that revelatory direction. For example, many of us or our descendants will doubtless participate in the fulfillment of prophecies about the building of the city of New Jerusalem. But on this matter, the timing is the Lord's, not ours. We will not be approved or blessed in clearing the ground or pouring the footings for that great project until the Lord has said that it is time. In this, as in so many other things, the Lord will proceed in His own time and in His own way. We prepare in the way the Lord has directed. We hold ourselves in readiness to act on the Lord's timing. He will tell us when the time is right to take the next step. For now, we simply concentrate on our own assignments and what we have been asked to do today. In this we are also mindful of the Lord's assurance that I will hasten my work in its time. People who do not accept continuing revelation sometimes get into trouble by doing things too soon or too late or too long. The practice of polygamy is an example. The importance of the Lord's timing is also evident in His dietary laws. The Lord gave one dietary direction to ancient Israel. 
Much later, because of the evils and designs that exist in these last days, he has given us a word of wisdom, suited to the circumstances of our time, accompanied by the promised blessings we need in our time. The Lord's timing also applies to the important events of our personal lives. A great scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants declares that a particular spiritual experience will come to us in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. This principle applies to Revelation and to all of the most important events in our lives—birth, death, marriage, and even our moves from place to place. Here is an example from the life of a prominent ancestor of many of in this audience. Anson Call was in the initial exodus from Nauvoo. He and his family crossed Iowa in the spring of 1846 and reached Council Bluffs, Iowa that summer. There, Brigham Young was organizing wagon companies. He appointed Anson Call captain of ten wagons. The twelve ordered his wagon train to move west. They left the Missouri River for the west on July 22, 1846. Organized by priesthood authority, they were directed toward the Rocky Mountains, and they went westward with great energy. After traveling over 130 miles through what is now Nebraska, this first wagon train was overtaken by new instructions directing them not to proceed further that season. They found a place to winter and then in the spring of 1847 returned east and rejoined the main body of the Church on the Iowa side of the Missouri. There Anson Call and his family remained for a year making further preparations and helping others prepare for the trip west. It was two years after their initial start westward in 1846 that Anson Call and his family finally journeyed to the valleys of the mountains. There the obedient and resourceful Anson Call was frequently used by Brigham Young to begin new settlements in the Intermountain West. What is the meaning of this pioneer experience? It is not enough that we are under call or even that we are going in the right direction. The timing must be right. And if the time is not right, our actions should be adjusted to the Lord's timetable as revealed by His servants. The Lord's timing is often revealed in this way. Several years ago, President Hinckley announced the construction of a large number of new temples essentially doubling the number of operating temples in the Church from about 50 to about 100 in just a few years. Having additional temples has always been the direction to go, but until the Prophet of the Lord signaled this as a major initiative, no one could have properly urged such a sudden and dramatic increase for the Church and its people. Only the Lord's prophet could move the whole church west. Only the Lord's prophet could signal the church to double its operating temples in just a few years. In my conference talk last October, I gave another illustration. 
the importance of following the Lord's timing with those we try to interest in hearing the gospel message. Proclaiming the gospel is his work, not ours, and therefore it must be done on his timing, not ours. There are nations in the world today that must hear the gospel before the Lord will come again. We know this, but we cannot force it. We must wait upon the Lord's timing. He will tell us and he will open the doors or bring down the walls when the time is right. We should pray for the Lord's help and directions so that we can be instruments in his hands to proclaim the gospel to nations and persons who are now ready, persons he would have us help today. The Lord loves all of his children, and he desires that all have the fullness of his truth and the abundance of his blessings. He knows when groups or individuals are ready And he wants us to hear and heed his timetable for sharing his gospel with them. The achievement of some important goals in our lives is subject to more than the timing of the Lord. Some personal achievements are also subject to the agency of others. This is particularly evident in two matters of special importance to young people of college age, missionary baptisms and marriage. Last summer, Sister Oaks and I were in Manaus, Brazil. I spoke to about a hundred missionaries in that great city on the Amazon. As I stood to speak, I was prompted to put aside some notes I usually use on such occasions and substitute some thoughts on the importance of timing, some of the scriptures and principles I've been talking about today. I reminded the missionaries that some of our most important plans cannot be brought to pass without the agency and actions of others. A missionary cannot baptize five persons this month without the agency and action of five other persons. A missionary can plan and work and do all within his or her power, but the desired result will depend upon the additional agency and action of others. Consequently, a missionary's goals ought to be based upon the missionary's personal agency and action, not upon the agency or action of others. But this is not the time to elaborate what I told the missionaries about goals. Instead, I will share some other applications of the principle of timing, giving illustrations from our personal lives. Someone has said that life is what happens to us while we are making other plans. Because of things over which we have no control, we cannot plan and bring to pass everything we desire in our lives. Many important things will occur in our lives that we have not planned, and not all of them will be welcome. The tragic events of September 11th and their revolutionary consequences provide an obvious example. Even our most righteous desires may elude us or come in different ways or at different times than we have sought to plan. For example, we cannot be sure that we will marry as soon as we desire. A marriage that is timely in our view may be our blessing or it may not. My wife Kristen is an example. 
She did not marry until many years after her mission and her graduation. Older singles have some interesting experiences. While she was at her sister's place to celebrate her 50th birthday, her sister's husband shared something he had just read in a newspaper. Kristen, he said, now that you are a single woman over 50, your chances of marrying are not as good as your chances of being killed by a terrorist. (laughs) The timing of marriage is perhaps the best example of an extremely important event in our lives that is almost impossible to plan. Like other important mortal events that depend on the agency of others or the will and timing of the Lord, marriage cannot be anticipated or planned with certainty. We can and should work for and pray for our righteous desires. But despite this, many will remain single well beyond their desired time for marriage. So what should be done in the meantime? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ prepares us for whatever life brings. This kind of faith prepares us to deal with life's opportunities, to take advantage of those that are received and to persist through the disappointments of those that are lost. In the exercise of that faith, we should commit ourselves to the priorities and standards we will follow in our lives on matters we do not control, and persist faithfully in those commitments, whatever happens to us because of the agency of others or the timing of the Lord. When we do this, we will have a constancy in our lives that will give us direction and peace. Whatever the circumstances beyond our control, our commitments and standards can be constant. Sometimes our commitments will surface at unexpected times and be applied in unexpected circumstances. Sometimes the principles we have taught to others come back to guide our own actions when we think we don't need them anymore. A personal example illustrates this reality. Most Latter-day Saint parents know the importance of giving their children reminders as they go out on a date. I did this with our children, and I think they heeded my counsel. During the time I was getting acquainted with Kristen, when I left the house to meet her, one of my children said to me with a twinkle in the eye, Now, Dad, remember who you are. The commitments and service of adult singles can anchor them through the difficult years of waiting for the right time and the right person. Their commitments and service can also inspire and strengthen others. The poet John Greenleaf Whittier wrote of this in his wonderful poem, Snowbound, which contains this description of a dear aunt who never married. The sweetest woman ever fate perverse denied a household mate who lonely, homeless, not the less found peace in love's unselfishness and welcome wheresoe'er she went, a calm and gracious element. Wise are those who make this commitment, I will put the Lord first in my life, and I will keep his commandments. 
The performance of that commitment is within everyone's control. We can fulfill that commitment without regard to what others decide to do, and that commitment will anchor us no matter what timing the Lord directs for the most important events in our lives. Do you see the difference between committing to what you will do in contrast to trying to plan that you will be married by the time you graduate or that you will earn at least X dollars on your first job? If we have faith in God and if we are committed to the fundamentals of keeping His commandments and putting Him first in our lives, we do not need to plan every single important event, even every important event, and we should not feel rejected or depressed if some things, even some very important things, do not happen at the time we had planned or hoped or prayed. Commit yourself to put the Lord first in your life. Keep His commandments and do what the Lord's servants ask you to do. Then your feet are on the pathway to eternal life. Then it does not matter whether you are called to be a bishop or a Relief Society president, whether you are married or single, or whether you die tomorrow. You do not know what will happen. Do your best on what is fundamental and personal, and then trust in the Lord and His timing. Life has some strange turns. I will share some personal experiences that illustrate this. When I was a young man, I thought I would serve a mission. I graduated from high school in June 1950. Thousands of miles away, one week after that high school graduation, a North Korean army crossed the 38th parallel, and our country was at war. I was 17 years old, but as a member of the Utah National Guard, I was soon under orders to prepare for mobilization and active service. Suddenly, for me and for many other young men of my generation, the full-time mission we had planned or assumed was not to be. Another example. After I served as president of BYU for nine years, I was released. A few months later, the governor of the state of Utah appointed me to a 10-year term on the Supreme Court of this state. I was then 48 years of age. My wife June and I tried to plan the rest of our lives. We wanted to serve the full-time mission neither of us had been privileged to serve. We planned that I would serve 20 years on the Supreme Court. Then, at the end of two 10-year terms, when I would be nearly 69 years old, I would retire from the Supreme Court and we would submit our missionary papers and serve a mission as a couple. I had my 69th birthday last summer and was vividly reminded of that important plan. If things had gone as we planned, I would now be submitting papers to serve a mission with my wife, June. Four years after we made that plan, I was called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, something we never dreamed would happen. Realizing then that the Lord had different plans and different timing than I had assumed, I resigned as a Justice of the Supreme Court. But this was not the end of the important differences. When I was 66, my wife, June, died of cancer. Two years later, a year and a half ago, I married Kristen McMain, 
the eternal companion who now stands at my side. How fundamentally different my life is than I had sought to plan. My professional life has changed. My personal life has changed. But the commitment I made to the Lord to put Him first in my life and to be ready for whatever He would have me do has carried me through these changes of eternal importance. Faith and trust in the Lord give us the strength to accept and persist whatever happens in our lives. I did not know why I received a no answer to my prayers for the recovery of my wife of many years. But the Lord gave me a witness that this was His will, and He gave me the strength to accept it. Two years after her death, I met this wonderful woman who is now my wife for eternity, and I know that this also was the will of the Lord. I return to the subject with which I began. Do not rely on planning every event of your life, even every important event. Stand ready to accept the Lord's planning and the agency of others in matters that inevitably affect you. Plan, of course, but fix your planning on personal commitments that will carry you through no matter what happens. Anchor your life to eternal principles and act upon those principles whenever the circumstances and whatever the actions of others. Then you can await the Lord's timing and be sure of the outcome in eternity. The most important principle of timing is to take the long view. Mortality is just a small slice of eternity. But how we conduct ourselves here, what we become by our actions and desires, confirmed by our covenants and the ordinances administered to us by proper authority, will shape our destiny for all eternity. As the prophet Amulek taught, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. That reality should help us take the long view, the timing of eternity. As President Charles W. Penrose declared at the memorial service for President Joseph F. Smith, Why waste your time, your talents, your means, your influence in following something that will perish and pass away? when you could devote yourselves to a thing that will stand forever. For this Church and Kingdom to which you belong will abide and continue in time, in eternity, while endless ages roll on and you with it will become mightier and more powerful, while the things of this world will pass away and perish and will not abide in nor after the resurrection with the Lord our God." End of quote. I pray that each of us will hear and heed the word of the Lord on how to conduct ourselves in mortality and set our standards and make our commitments so that we can be in harmony and in tune with the timing of our Father in heaven. I testify of Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose church this is, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Waiting Upon the Lord's Timing. 
We've just heard from Dallin H. Oaks. After the break, we'll return with Lynn Clark Callister for They That Wait Upon the Lord, Metaphor and Meaning. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Waiting Upon the Lord's Timing. Next is Lynn Clark Callister, BYU Associate Professor of Nursing at the time of this address, titled They That Wait Upon the Lord, Metaphor and Meaning. Using the literary technique of repetition and completion, the prophet Isaiah wrote this magnificent promise. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. My text is guided today by this scriptural passage, drawing on personal and professional life experiences, other scriptural passages, and the words of the prophets, waiting upon the Lord. As a woman and a nurse researcher focusing on women's health, when I first think of the word waiting, I think of women bearing children. Old Testament Hannah spoke of her experience when she said, For this child I have prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I ask of him. Hannah waited upon the Lord. Patricia Holland has suggested that, quote, Women appreciate the word labor in a way that no man ever can, end quote. I believe this is so. For nine months, a woman carries a child both beneath her heart and within her heart, waiting long months, then laboring long hours, then giving birth. Over the past decade, my research has focused on the meaning of childbirth. I have listened to the birth stories of women living in North and Central America, Scandinavia, and the Middle East. What wonderful experiences have been mine. I have learned through interviewing women that there is a connectedness that transcends the barriers of language and culture when sacred experiences such as childbirth are shared. The pictures of my own children and grandchildren became dog-eared and worn from being held in so many women's hands as we shared our commonalities. I listened to women talk sitting on worn, century-old wooden benches in maternal and child health clinics and on dirt floors in humble homes and in refugee camps. I sat among these women and listened, women whose life experiences are so different than my own. I see in my mind's eye the Guatemalan women wearing brightly woven colored clothing made by their own hands, creating beauty in stark contrast to the harshness and poverty of their life circumstances. I think of the Orthodox Jewish women, their hair covered in symbolism of their modesty before the Lord. Many of the Muslim women were robed and veiled, covered from head to toe in black as a symbol of their devotion to God. In thousands of pages of transcribed narrative data, I found that women made sacred the experience of giving birth, supporting the thesis that there is deep meaning in women's ordinary and commonplace lives, regardless of sociocultural context. The foundational wellsprings of Christian, Islamic, and Judaic religious traditions give these women a pattern and language for creating meaning in their lives. Such intuitiveness demonstrates an openness to the transcendent dimensions of their life experiences. Women spoke of the integration of the spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and physical dimensions of pregnancy and birth. 
This supports the most significant Islamic principle, Tawad, meaning that life experiences prove the oneness of God. One Muslim woman expressed it in this way, During childbirth, the woman is in the hands of God. Every night during my pregnancy, I read from the Holy Quran to the child. When I was in labor, I was reading a special paragraph from the Holy Quran about protection. The nurses were crying when they heard what I was reading. I felt like a miracle might happen, that there was something holy around me, protecting me, something beyond the ordinary, a feeling, a spirit about being part of God's creation of a child. There is special protection for women who assume the sacred task of bearing children, as expressed in an earlier verse in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd and gently lead those who are with young. An Orthodox Jewish woman said that every action in her life, including childbirth, was guided by Hashim, the Yiddish word for God. An Orthodox Jewish grandmother, whose two daughters had recently given birth, articulated her sense of the dimensions of becoming a mother in this way. Having a baby is not only a physical and biological experience. It is all that, but it's much more than that. It is a very high spiritual experience. Because the whole purpose of the world is bringing down a child, bringing down a soul. If God gives you a soul, you become the caretaker of that soul. I mean, God gives this into your hands. You feel God's presence most tangibly when you have gone through childbirth. Jewish women spoke reverently about their experiences with childbirth. Frequently, in Jewish literature, spiritual striving is compared to labor and childbirth. The pivotal life event of giving birth for many women represents this concept of waiting upon the Lord. Among indigenous women giving birth in rural Guatemalan highlands, newborns have a tenfold higher risk of dying during the first year of life as compared with babies born in the United States, and mothers have a twelvefold higher risk of losing their lives in complications associated with childbirth. The stark reality is that the child a woman carries may not live and that the childbearing woman herself is at increased risk of losing her own life. Within this sociocultural context where life is tenuous, women find strength in their spiritual lifestyle, relying on the Lord to ensure positive outcomes or to be given the courage to deal with negative ones. One Mayan woman said, Giving birth, I felt closer to God. I thanked God for allowing me to have a baby. Well, I don't say that she is mine, but that he let me borrow her. While the baby was yet in my womb, I realized how great God is. Only God watches over the children that are yet in the womb because only he could do that. Professor Cynthia Hallen, in an interesting treatise on Isaiah and 3 Nephi, defines the metaphorical scriptural language associated with childbirth and spiritual growth. The bittersweet paradox of this experience is described by the Apostle Paul. A woman, when she is in travail, hath pain, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. The acts of labor and childbirth have been compared to the struggle for spiritual birth as suggested in this scriptural text. Pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. And again in the New Testament, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. The spiritual rebirth of the earth is articulated in the language of childbirth. The earth hath travailed and brought forth her strength.
Elder Bruce C. Hafen also noted significant spiritual parallels, quote, Just as a woman's body may be permanently marked with the signs of pregnancy and childbirth, he, the Savior, said, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. For both a mother and the Savior, those marks memorialize a wrenching sacrifice, the sacrifice of begetting life, for her physical birth, for him spiritual rebirth, end quote. Wait, in Hebrew, means to hope for, to anticipate. In a gospel context, waiting upon the Lord connotes hopeful anticipation, submission to the Lord's will, trusting in the Lord. Waiting connotes an active process, one of keeping our covenants. Fervent meekness is required in a realization of our need for reliance on the Lord. Waiting requires continual self-examination and constantly trying to become more worthy an ever-deepening and progressive discipleship of a broken heart, a contrite spirit, a yielded will, a consecration of self. The word wait denotes spiritual expectation. It is when one knows that the guidance of the Lord and the answers to our prayers are spiritual gifts which one cannot control or demand. It means we must be content and peaceful about the spiritual nudgings we may receive the gentle promptings, and be grateful for those occasional illuminating moments of brighter light and clearer understanding. Why does the Lord require waiting? Why aren't blessings granted immediately? Why are we required to see through the glass darkly, not knowing the end from the beginning? The Lord has told us, Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning you, The Savior has said, I hid my face from you but for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. The hymnist penned this plea, Keep thou my feet, I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. Waiting sometimes means living with uncertainty. We can look to the example of Elder Neal A. Maxwell living with the uncertainty of a potentially life-threatening illness. He said, quote, Uncertainty as to our longevity is one of life's basic realities for all of us. Hence, you and I should importune in faith for the blessings we deeply desire, but then be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto us. End quote. Elder Maxwell has suggested further that such waiting upon the Lord is, quote, more than polite deference. Rather, it is a deep yielding in which one's momentary uncertainty gives way to the certainty of the Father's rescuing love and mercy, unquote. Emma Smith was counseled to murmur not. I believe the Lord was saying to Emma and to us, be still. And know that I am God. We are invited to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. Is it possible for us to trust the Lord that much? Or do we rely too much on ourselves and our own finite abilities to reason and solve perplexing problems? Blessings come when we are willing to wait upon the Lord. The blessing of the renewal of strength the blessing of exhilarating upward growth, the blessing of strength to endure are promised in this scriptural passage. 
Many of the women whom I interviewed learned about their own capacities to be strengthened as they literally waited upon the Lord as they labored and gave birth. One woman reflected, The experience of childbirth helped me learn a lot about my capacity. When I thought I was just too tired to push any more, I found another 15 minutes' worth of energy. I learned I have a lot more strength than I thought I did. Childbirth brought me more in tune with myself because I know what my capacities are, my mental, emotional, and spiritual capacities, my strength. I just know I could do a lot more than I thought I could. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The phrase, shall renew their strength, seems to imply receipt of the Holy Ghost as a gift, as a comforter which enlightens our minds, fills our souls with joy, and literally renews our bodies. May I share with you, with permission, the story of one of my students. This young man experienced the tragic death of his father in an accident when he was six years old. He left his childhood home when the actions of an emotionally and physically abusive stepfather became overwhelming. He worked to earn money for his mission. He had been blessed with a burning testimony all of his life and literally counted the days until he could serve a mission. He was determined to use every moment of his time wisely as he served in Japan, putting in long hours of finding and teaching investigators. He gave his heart, might, mind, and strength to the work. Again and again, he had investigators get one step away from baptism and then fall through. Every time someone would walk away from their testimony, this elder felt as though his heart would break. One day, he sat in his own leaders' conference. It had been a rough month. He hadn't heard anything from home for many months and no baptisms. He sat and listened as elders arose and spoke of the great blessings they were enjoying in the work. One elder testified how much his family had been blessed by his missionary service. This elder heard the same thing said over and over again. He began to weep and could not hold back the tears. He said at that moment he was renewed and comforted by the Holy Ghost. Quote, I knew that the Lord was pleased with my efforts. I felt his spirit quite literally to the consuming of my flesh. About a month later, the mission president came to do interviews. He sat me down and asked me how I was doing. I told him about our investigators and their progress. He stopped me and asked again how I was doing. So I told him how the missionary efforts were going. He stopped me again and asked how I was doing. I couldn't answer. Sometimes the strain of life just becomes so heavy and filled with heartbreak that if you stop to rest, you are afraid you'll be crushed under the weight of it all. That is how I was beginning to feel. My mission president opened up his scriptures and read, putting my name in the place of Nephi's. Blessed art thou, Elder Taylor, for those things which thou hast done. For I have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared the word which I have given unto thee and to these people. For thou hast sought my will and to keep my commandments. And now, because thou hast done this with such unweariness, behold, I will bless thee forever. The word spoke right out to me. At that moment, I felt justified before God. I knew of his acceptance of my offering. End quote. The experiences of this young missionary fulfill the scriptural injunction of the Apostle Paul to be not wearied and faint in our minds, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that ye may prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This elder waited upon the Lord. By hoping for or anticipating Christ, our strength is renewed. The Apostle Paul suggested that though our outward man or woman perish, yet the outward man or woman is renewed day by day. This thought is powerfully simple with beautiful imagery. The blessing of renewal may come through the keeping of our covenants. May I share with you the tender example of renewing covenants while waiting upon the Lord in uncertain circumstances. On a humanitarian service assignment through the Kennedy Center for International Studies, Carol and Sterling Otteson are currently teaching English in Jinan, Shandong Province, the People's Republic of China. Carol wrote of their first Sabbath day in China, quote, The two of us sat side by side in our living room on two upholstered chairs with a small table between us on which we had placed a cup of boiled water and a small piece of bread. We selected a song that we knew and that wouldn't be too sentimental, Welcome, Welcome, Sabbath Morning. Nevertheless, we couldn't make it through without a lump in our throats, and the sound was nearly inaudible as we finished. Now we rest from every care. Holy Sabbath, day of prayer. Sterling said a beautiful prayer, Thank the Lord that Carol could come today, which helped made us laugh and cry at the same time. He then blessed the sacrament and we partook. After we began our scripture reading in the New Testament, then spoke a few words to each other in an assessment of our time here and a statement of our purposes. We both feel strongly about the rightness of this decision, and this gives us courage. End quote. Yesterday, I received another note from the Odysons, who are completing their year-long assignment in China. And we feel so blessed to have had this experience, to know there are children here that we can learn from and that we can draw our circle of love around. We can only give in ways that we know how, and sometimes that seems woefully inadequate. But we know we have been watched over here and have been made strong many times when we felt very weak. More than ever, we can bear full witness of the sustaining presence of the Spirit when we sufficiently humble ourselves. We have been given strength we didn't know we had. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. The next promised blessing is to mount up with wings as eagles. Have you ever seen the wings of eagles? The extension of those powerful wings is incredible. Jehovah reminded the children of Israel, I bore you on eagles' wings and bring you unto myself. Speaking metaphorically, the Apostle John wrote, And to the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness. What are the wildernesses of our lives in which we struggle to mount up with wings as eagles? And in international nursing course, students have the opportunity to spend a semester in Amman, Jordan, providing health care in a variety of acute care and community-based health settings, including a Palestinian refugee camp where over 200,000 people live in abject poverty. Student experiences have been facilitated by able BYU faculty, including Dean Sandra Rogers, Dr. Roseanne Schwartz, Dr. James Toronto, and Professor Myrna Warnick. Students and faculty are pioneers, charting their course with faith and courage. They learned literally to rely on the Lord and wait on the Lord for guidance and direction. 
Permission was gained to participate in evening prayers at the university mosque and to be directed and instructed by the director of that mosque. He was amazed by the respectful and thoughtful question posed by the Mormon students about the Islamic faith. In this immersion experience, BYU students lived side by side in on-campus housing with Arab students. These facilities lack many of the conveniences we take for granted here. Hot water is sporadic, there are frequent power outages, and challenging bathroom facilities. Need I say more? I joined the nursing students for their evening devotional and was deeply touched. A hymn of faith, a heartfelt thought, a favorite scripture, and a humble prayer characterized these gatherings. The dormitory at the University of Jordan grew hushed as the sweet voices of these young students were raised in song and the spirit filled a small student bedroom. One Arab Christian student asked permission to join our BYU students each night, audio-taping the devotionals so she could listen to them after the students from Brigham Young University left Amman. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ was reflected in the lives and faces of our BYU students. Two years after the initial experience in fall 1995 semester, I returned to Jordan and listened to health care of personnel university and government officials speak with fondness and respect about these little Mormon nurses who made such a difference with their brightness and enthusiastic approach to caring. Dean Sandra Rogers has said, quote, When the history of the Church in the Middle East is written, the footprints of the students and faculty in the College of Nursing will be indelibly stamped upon those pages. End quote. I believe this is so. These students have waited upon the Lord and mount up with wings as eagles, making a difference in the lives of our Muslim brothers and sisters in the Middle East. But they that wait upon the Lord shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Walk and not faint. I believe we are seeing this scriptural blessing come to pass as we witness the remarkable ministry of President Hinckley, now in his 89th year, who has traveled hundreds of thousands of miles throughout the world since becoming the prophet. King Benjamin wisely counseled, It is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. The prophet Joseph Smith received this counsel from the Lord, Do not run faster or labor more than you have strength, but be diligent unto the end. Think of this promise of endurance in terms of a marathon, which requires consistent and long-term efforts, running with a burst of speed, but then consistently slowing to a walk and completing the race. Could this imply, in the words of Mormon, that as followers of Christ we walk peaceably rather than with an anxious and hectic haste? We have been promised that as we run with patience the race that is set before us, in the strength of the Lord we can do all things. We can run and not be weary and walk and not faint as we wait upon the Lord to gain a fuller understanding of our life challenges. I testify this is so. I bear solemn witness that continuing opportunities to wait upon the Lord have blessed my own life. I'm sensitive to making reference to my own life experiences, but I'll use the excuse of Thoreau, who said, quote, I should not talk so much about myself if there were anybody else whom I knew as well. End quote. As a young child, my life was secure and happy in a home centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The pain of the death of my mother when I was seven years old was cushioned by the love of my family. I graduated from Brigham Young University, married in the temple, supported my husband through graduate studies, held church callings, and had five beautiful children. I was blessed with a wonderful and secure life. I had multiple opportunities to serve. Then came the test of the depths of my faith. Twelve years ago, I found myself a single mother. I felt shocked that anything could so disrupt our family, disbelief that divorce could happen to the perfect family, fear for the future, and anger. I held my sobbing children in my arms at night, trying to comfort their broken hearts. One of my little daughters carefully hid in her room a white envelope filled with tiny pieces of a photograph of her mother and father, shredded by the hands of a heartbroken child. After 23 years of marriage and five children, after 14 months of litigation and thousands of dollars in legal fees, I found myself in a Kansas courtroom going through what was abhorrent to me. I was alone in that courtroom. I thought of another who was alone, he who said, I have trodden the winepress alone. There are some things that must be done alone. I was determined that although the adversary had destroyed a marriage, he would not destroy our family. On the wall of our home hung the inscription of the stirring commitment of Old Testament Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I drew my children close in an intimate circle of love. We read scriptures on my big bed. My children, like a litter of puppies, sprawled across and around each other and me in a casual, happy atmosphere. Our family was strengthened by pillows of faith that cushioned and softened the blows of life with flexibility and resiliency. Building on the imagery of Cervantes' work, Don Quixote, President Howard W. Hunter has said, quote, Where one door closes, another opens. Doors close regularly in our lives, and some of those closings cause genuine pain and heartache. But I do believe that where one such door closes, another opens, and perhaps more than one, with hope and blessings in other areas of our lives that we might not have discovered otherwise. End quote. Ten years ago, unsolicited and across many miles, came the invitation to join the faculty in the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. My first response was no. It would not be possible for me to uproot my children from their childhood home when they had already experienced so much pain. It would not be possible for me to complete my graduate studies, take my comprehensive examinations, pack a household, sell a home, and move a family halfway across the country, a single woman with five children to be accomplished in a few short weeks. In turmoil and doubt, I went to the temple, seeking the Lord's guidance, and there came to me the gentle whispering, Go. And with that counsel came these reassuring words, For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way. The way was prepared, graduate studies completed, the house sold, the offer accepted, the move negotiated. I fell to my knees with tears streaming down my face, gratitude for the many blessings of a loving Heavenly Father to one of the least of his daughters. Nearly nine years ago, I knelt again with tears in my eyes, this time kneeling across the altar of the Provo Temple with a man who loves the Lord. It is only when we have known the bitter that we may prize the sweet. The philosopher Cahill Gabran observed that, quote, 
the cavity created by the suffering through which we go becomes a receptacle for compensating blessings. End quote. I am grateful for the multitude of compensating blessings that have come as I have waited upon the Lord. We were sealed in the house of the Lord, bringing together a blended family of 11 children. It seems significant that our first two grandsons were born only hours apart, and we planted two tiny spruce trees in celebration of those births. These two grandsons were baptized this month and are happily preparing to serve missions in only 11 short years. Missions and marriages and more grandchildren have come and keep coming. Our cup runneth o'er. We are rich in posterity. We could use a little money to go along with it, but... (laughs) We anticipate the marriages of our last two children in the coming months. We celebrated the birth of another grandchild last Friday and are looking forward to the birth of two more in the coming weeks. There are continuing challenges and opportunities for growth including the death of our precious daughter, Lucianne, last July. But how blessed our family is. The Lord described my own experience when he said, Mine angels shall be round about you to bear you up. His affirming words continue in the following chapter in Isaiah. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. His promises are sure. Of this I bear solemn witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Waiting Upon the Lord's Timing with thoughts from Dallin H. Oaks and Lynn Clark Callister. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.